Hi, I'm Erica Chitty Cohen, and you're listening to This Matters, Conversations on COVID-19. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Loom, a well-being brand that empowers women around sexual and reproductive health. This conversation is about abortion and explores how the pandemic has impacted access and perception of abortion in the United States. Dr. Erica Cahill, OBGYN and lecturer at Stanford University, joins me again to explore the difference between a medication abortion versus a surgical abortion and how you can access an abortion during this uncertain time. This conversation was recorded on May 1st, 2020. Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for another This Matters conversation about COVID-19. Today we're going to be talking about abortion and just exploring how the pandemic has impacted access to it and also demystifying abortion and really getting some clarity around what it is, how it works, and understanding how to best access it just at a at a macro level and super excited as always to have dr erica cahill with us again today how are you doing i'm i'm pretty good today it's really beautiful out here so nice were you on call today or are you just i was just in clinic this morning well if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself telling everybody a little bit about you that'd be a great place to start Sure. So I am an OBGYN who I work at Stanford University and I see patients, I teach um, medical students, um, and then I also have a podcast called The V Word where I talk with one of my colleagues about all things related to reproductive health. And I'm so excited to be here and talk about this in particular. Yeah, I, I think this topic is something that's very near to both of us, just in terms of the fact that we both see abortion as essential health care. And, you know, I'm just curious, like in your practice as a provider, you know, can you speak a little bit more to that concept of why it's essential and why we were both in alignment around how it needs to be provided, particularly during this time? Yeah, I think that abortion is one of those things and ending a pregnancy is one of those things that people never plan to do that no one is prepared to do. And so I think it's something that happens for so many reasons um, and that people, it's great to know about this information because it can, it happens to everyone. We know that abortion is super common, that it happens with about one in three pregnant people and their partners and that why people decide to have abortions has to do with things that go wrong in their pregnancies, things that go wrong in the rest of their life, whether it's um, social circumstances, relationships, financial situations, um, and all sorts of things, and that you never expect it to happen to you. And so I think it's a great that we're talking about this so that people know what their resources are and for them and their their people um, before they need it. Yeah. And I think just that piece around unexpected, I want to kind of drill into that a little bit more. You know, who do you really see statistically is being impacted when abortion comes under threat? Who are the people that are the most impacted by that? Yeah, so while everyone has abortions, they're, you know, every socioeconomic status, every um, age, and every reproductive age group, Um, every race, ethnicity, all these things, when we look at the statistics of who has abortion in this country, they 
there disproportionately women of color are having abortion, particularly African-American women, about a third of all abortions in the US. Um, we know that disproportionately people who are living within very close to the federal poverty line, so having a low socioeconomic status are more likely to have abortion. And you know, people have all sorts of narratives about why that is, but I think you and I have talked about this, that there are different implications about bringing a child into this world if you are living within you know, 200% or 100% of the federal poverty line. And as you and I have talked about in other conversations, there's a whole lot of other things that now come with bringing in and then the raising a child in this world as a woman of color. And so I think those things are, you know, we need to be very careful about the narratives around those things and how we uh, attach the systemic racism and problems in this country to that and not blame people. But so, but those are the statistics about that. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the idea of systemic racism, institutionalized racism, mm -hmm. implicit bias, how all of these things play into this conversation, I think has a lot to do with, you know, why the restrictions are there. The fact that if it was affecting a different demographic, potentially the restrictions might not be the way that they are. And so I think that's always really important just to bring up that socioeconomic construct when we're talking about abortion. And from there, so let's talk about how abortion is being impacted with COVID-19 and maybe we'll yeah. kick off with medication abortion and, and maybe just talk a little bit about when is a medication abortion indicated? I think sometimes there's some confusion around when that yeah. thing and when you need to be thinking about a different procedure. Yeah. Yeah, so there's basically two ways to interrupt a pregnancy before viability. There is taking a taking a series of medications that basically induce a, a pregnancy loss, um, which is called a medication abortion. And then there's a procedure, um, which uh, is done usually um, by a care provider who's certified in that procedure. And I'm happy to talk about that too. The medications, the way that a medication abortion works is it's typically a series of two medications. The first medication is called mifepristone and blocks progesterone, which is a hormone important for pregnancy uh, continuing. And it also sensitizes the uterus to the next medication called misoprostol, which causes the uterus to contract and expel the pregnancy tissue. And the in the US, that's approved by the FDA up until 10 weeks of pregnancy. And so not only is, an abor is abortion a uh, essential, it's also a time-sensitive service. And it's something that really, depending on how long it takes to access care, depends on what care is available and how far people have to travel to care. So 10 weeks is like 10 weeks and zero days is really the cutoff for medication abortion when it no longer becomes an option. Yeah. And just in terms of, you know, because we're in a pandemic and thinking about, you know, access to care being limited, can you talk a little bit about just what to expect when taking the medication abortion yeah. or going through a medication abortion and just, you know, some of the self-care afterwards, because I think that's something as, as, as someone who supported people through abortions, you know, I have been very, you know, so very not i'm trying to think of the best word here but I, i've tried my very best to give people an understanding that after the fact there there's there's care that's needed which i think sometimes isn't yeah. um discussed enough between the person and their provider and just like culturally we don't really think about it 
Yeah. And I think a big portion of that is stigma, which we can talk about in terms of all many things, but I think there's almost nothing, no medical care in this country that has more stigma than abortion. And so a lot of that gets, people are embarrassed to seek the sort resources that they would normally seek for support. Um, but in terms of what happens medically and physically after a medication abortion, most people will, after taking the second medication, the mesoprostol, have bleeding and cramping that starts within about four hours. Um, and most people have pretty heavy bleeding and pretty and intense cramping for several hours. Um, and then it kind of gets lighter and lighter and lighter and stops. It's similar in many ways to a miscarriage, though a little less variable um, in terms of the bleeding, but it is still variable. So people can bleed for a while. Um, and usually the heaviest bleeding is about one to two hours. Yeah. And when you say a while, the bleeding could last, you know, a week, two weeks, something like that in terms of spotting and that type of thing. Yep, in terms of spotting, it can last even a few weeks. It, it could last even longer than that, but it should just be only spotting, really. Heavy, usually heavy bleeding and then spotting for longer. And so what, what recommendations would you have just in terms of taking care of yourself, taking care of your body, managing that um, after the fact? Well, I think similar to a miscarriage in many ways that there's lots there, the body is sort of designed and designed to recover quickly after a pregnancy loss because they're so common um, that, and there's no, you know, wound that needs to heal. There's not, no stitches that need to absorb. And so in many ways, it's just making space for the body to do its natural healing. Um, and so what we typically recommend is not doing anything strenuous for at least a day, but that, but I think I always tell people like, it really depends on what feels good to you. Like some people need to be moving. Some people really need to be in a bath. Some people need to be, you know, need to be just lying in their bed in a fetal position. And I think, but physically actually people tend to be okay. It's somewhat like having period cramps. Yeah. And so just to, you know, bring that, piece where you're saying most people are typically okay. I, I noticed that you just mentioned that baths were okay. So that's mm -hmm. not indicated after having medication. Yeah. So this is a big debate actually about the after miscarriage and after abortion instructions. And we basically have extrapolated all postpartum instructions, like after a term delivery, to what we tell people after a miscarriage and after an, and after an abortion, because so so typically they say no submerging in water for a week, or sometimes people will say two weeks. And the reason for that is the cervix is a little bit open, and so there's this sort of theoretical risk that there could be bacteria in your vagina or in the water that then ascends up into the uterus. I have not found any research to substantiate that, and you and I both have a love for baths, and I think that those can be a really comforting experience for people postpartum and all those things. So I think you don't want to be in dirty water, but I think a bath can be really comfortable. Yeah. That's super helpful to hear because I think again, within the context of the, within the context of a pandemic, being able to just take a bath and do that type of thing, I think is so uh, you know, helpful to help your body feel better and kind of recover afterwards. Yeah. Let's talk about accessing a medication abortion. What's that looking like right now in light of COVID-19? Yeah, so uh, as I said, it's, it's these two medications, um, and the complication rate is very low from medication abortion. However, the first medication, mifepristone, is one of the, probably the most highly regulated medication, frankly. Um, 
And only providers who have specially basically requested access to this medication can give mifepristone. And it has to be observed in, in a clinic by those people, which means people have to travel to a clinic basically to have us watch them take a pill. Um, I'm happy to sort of delve into the politics of that, but it doesn't make sense medically. There's lots of research and written on why that is mostly political and not, not for the safety of the patient. Um, but it is very complicated in terms of logistics, particularly in a time when people are not supposed to be traveling. Um, and so there, we, we've already, because there have been such big restrictions on abortion in the past few years, there are already, many of my colleagues are doing research and also advocacy to try to get people better access to particularly this medication, the mifepristone, without having to travel many miles to one of the few providers that provides this, this medication. So and what's so, that looking like now yeah. in terms of the ways that you can access? Um, yeah, so some of these things luckily were already in place and then have been able to be ramped up with COVID. So some of those include a research study called Teleabortion, which there was just an amazing New York Times article all about um, that we can link to probably. But it's uh, started as a research study and they are continuing sort of in, in a research study because um, lots of reasons, but are accepting basically anyone who wants to be a part of the research, the research study, I shouldn't put it in quotes, it is a research study. And that allows people to basically um, meet with a provider over a telehealth visit who's able to provide the mifepristone and then have the pills sent to their house in kind of an, in an unmarked, you know, normal manila envelope. Um, and then what I think is very sweet is they also include in that like pads and tea and ice packs, some things that can help heat packs for afterwards. Um, but basically that people don't ever have to come into clinic. They talked with a care provider through video like this and that's it. And they get the pills at their house and then they have a check-in afterwards in a similar way, but that there's no driving and things like that. And one of the, it's available in 13 states right now. And you don't actually even have to live in those states. You just have to be able to be in one of those states when you're having the face-to-face -face discussion with the care provider and have an address in one of those states where you can have the package sent to um, per the rules of the research study. But they have been allowed to continue this study during the pandemic too, which is great. Awesome, yeah, I think telehealth is just making some major leaps and bounds um, as a result of the pandemic, but it's great to know that people can access um, teleabortion and be able to get the care that they need, you know, at this time. And so, thinking about a surgical abortion, can we talk through when that might be indicated? You did say that ten weeks and zero days is when you kind of hit the threshold for being applicable to use or to have a medication abortion. So, what does the kind of surgical, you know? Yeah, it look like and how has that been impacted as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, and just I just want to say because we're getting lots of questions on this, we will definitely link to the teleabortion resource for all of you who are asking about that. Um, in terms of a surgical abortion, I think um, sometimes I call this a procedural abortion because to me it's distinct from surgery in that there are no incisions, there's no stitches, we're usually not in an operating room, but it's a procedure that can be done at any any part of pregnancy. Um, and it is typically called a suction, dilation, and curatage. That's the name of the procedure. About over 90% of the time it's done in a clinic, so not in an operating room. 
um, and it's done without an anesthesiologist or someone that's responsible for putting you asleep. Usually people are not asleep for this procedure. Um, it, do you want me to talk about the procedure in detail, like what it involves? I think, I think just a quick kind of high level about what yeah. the procedure involves. Yeah. Just you might not actually understand sure. because I think one of the questions we had kind of was around yeah was, you know more yeah so maybe just speaking to that could be really helpful sure, sure. so uh, sort of a broad overview is it's a procedure where we basically place a suction catheter which is like when Starbucks used to have straws basically the size of a Starbucks straw um, inside the uterus and, and apply suction and basically suction out the pregnancy tissue. The dilation part is referring to the opening up of the uterus, which is called dilation. And then the suction part, the suction curatage is, is that suction catheter inside the uterus. The whole procedure usually takes about five, maybe 10 minutes. It's an incredibly safe procedure. Um, it's also the same procedure that we do for miscarriages. So it's one of the most common procedures in gynecology. Um, and yeah, it does. Other things I always tell people is it doesn't affect future fertility. That's a really big misconception that I think is really important. Neither one of these options affect getting pregnant in the future. One, one reason when thinking about which option to choose, I talk to people a lot about what feels right for them in terms of some people really feel like having um, more of a pregnancy loss miscarriage experience at home feels like the right thing, right experience for them. Um, that avoiding any sort of any procedural thing, anything that feels invasive is the right decision for them. Some people feel like they would rather be able to walk in and walk out and have it be done. Um, and I think those, there's a few other reasons why people choose that, but those are kind of, I think the ex thinking about the experience is really important in making this decision if, if there's no gestational age reason. So just to speak to the gestational age reasoning, yeah. I think that's actually important. Yep. There is a point in terms of the pregnancy that it is not avoidable to not go through with a, with a DNC or a dilation curatage, as you explained. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. So, so after, yeah, after 10 weeks, um, basically there's too much bleeding. That's the line we've drawn with in terms of the FDA and in terms of practice guidelines, that there's too much bleeding for people to basically have that bleeding safely at home. Um, there's lots of research looking at whether or not that's true, like whether or not there really is a difference in bleeding in terms of safety from 10 weeks to 11 weeks to 12 weeks, et cetera. Um, and then certainly as we get into the later second trimester um, into sort of like 19, 20 weeks, sometimes we basically induce labor the same way we would. Um, and that's called an induction termination or an induction abortion, which is kind of, sim which is similar. Um, but but much more rare. And so I'm happy to talk about that. But I think that if that's something that's an option for you, hopefully you're talking with your care provider about that option. Yeah. And so in terms of talking with your care provider and COVID-19 and just understanding if you are someone that's going to be a candidate for a procedural abortion or a surgical abortion, what, how does that look right now? Is that something that is is happening, you know, regardless yeah. how, like, what kind of precautions or yeah. how should people be kind of framing, you know, moving into that experience? Yeah. Well, I think, unfortunately, 
like abortion before COVID, it really depends on where you are. And there's so the restrictions on abortion are so geographical in this country, um, particularly by state. And so um, the major medical organizations have all come out and said abortion is an essential and time sensitive service. So most states and most hospitals are continuing abortion care during this experience, um, during this pandemic, but using precautions. So having fewer people in clinic and um, having people make fewer visits if possible, doing as much as possible through telehealth. So people are in clinic the shortest period of time, obviously wearing appropriate PPE. Some clinics are testing, some clinics that have the availability are testing all patients prior to their abortion procedure. Um, but it is a more involved process like everything right now. And so I think people who are seeking an abortion or seeking abortion care may have more hoops to jump through even when we're trying to minimize barriers to that right now, just because everyone who's coming to the hospital has more hoops right now or anyone who is seeing, seeking medical care at all. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think in some states, uh, the politicians in some states have used the pandemic to restrict abortion care further. And we've seen this in states that were already restricting abortion prior to the pandemic have tried to say that abortion should be delayed basically for the duration of the pandemic, which is insane. Yeah, which makes absolutely no sense. And I think no sense. Yeah. that's probably a great way to go into one of the questions that came through um, in, our, in our chat. So someone named Ariel has asked if we could talk a little bit about the anti-choice rhetoric and how it affects pro-choicers pro on the idea of abortion. I've yeah. always been scared of getting an abortion, but I recognize it isn't likely any worse than any other medical procedure and that the fear that she has has probably mm -hmm. been purposefully instilled. So I think this question's really, really great for a number of different reasons. And I think, you know, in answering it, I know we both have thoughts, but particularly I'd love to hear yours and also thinking about that quote we were talking about um, not too long ago around how the idea of abortion being elective places it in this really unfriendly paradigm that really needs to be kind of shut down. Yeah. Gotten rid yeah. of. So yeah. what what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so um, certainly, Ariel, the, feel, the fear of abortion has been instilled in you by an anti-choice rhetoric. Um, and I love that you call, I think, it, yeah, I think it's really anti-choice. Um, but also all the stigma around it has been a really intense, um, conscious, really, um, what's the right way to say this, like force, a, a very thought out um, with a long history. The actual abortion procedures, both medication abortion and uh, procedural abortions are incredibly safe, safer than almost anything else that I do in gynecology, safer than a C-section, safer than a vaginal delivery, um, safer than basically any other procedure you could have. Um, it is, uh, and it's also incredibly common. So we have lots and lots and lots of data about this. Um, the, I think many people I've heard from lots of people, one of the reasons they're interested in medication abortion and in tele, a telehealth version of medication abortion is because they're afraid of walking by protesters, um, which is a real thing to have to walk by people to seek medical care. Um, and I think that just is like a visual of that stigma for a lot of people. I'm curious for you, Erica, your thoughts, particularly from kind of a more of a reproductive justice framework about 
about this anti-choice rhetoric and how that's being reframed and, and how sort of like the response to that has been. Because I think we're living at a time when people are responding to that as like, this is not okay. We don't have to like fade into the shadows with this care. We can really own this in a much bigger way. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think a couple of different things. I feel like we are moving into a time where we're able to talk about abortion as essential health care and you know, the idea of, of choice or, or anti-choice, or I'm sorry, when I might say choice, pro-choice or anti-choice, the right to have a child or not have a child is a human right. Mm -hmm. And being able to access compassionate care to be able to make that decision, I think is so important. And so I think it's really taking the conversation around abortion out of the religious or dogmatic paradigm and really just placing it into a humanistic paradigm. And mm -hmm. I think that's really what's happening right now. And at the same time, as we talked about towards the beginning of this conversation, really acknowledging the socioeconomic factors that are impacting access, impacting legislation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think also something else that we talked about too, is that, you know, with the socioeconomic piece, these types of restrictions do affect black and brown women, do affect people that are living in that, you know, 100 to 200% below the federal poverty line. And, you know, if we really look at it in that framework, it becomes less about pro or anti, and it just becomes about, can people get the support they need to be able to live a life that is, yeah. you know, of, of, of comfort to them. And, and, and so that's kind of, that's kind of my feeling around that that piece and, and, and just looking at the kind of reproductive justice lens of yeah. it instead of very kind of broad view. But I think too, you know, I think it's important to be having conversations about abortion because I think they're very similar to birth control, very similar to, you know, even pregnancy. So many people have a limited understanding of how their bodies work, let alone the procedures that might be available yeah. to their body. And so understanding that an abortion when it's going to be medication related, it's going to be 10 weeks and under and that 10 weeks and over, you are now going to be looking at a different procedure that is not surgical, but is more invasive. These are all things that I think, although it doesn't change the situation you might be in, it helps you be able to have more comfort and understanding yeah. around how to advocate for yourself in these situations. And I think that for women, for people, for people that have yeah. productive parts is is a win it's a part of that evolution is the discussion so i think these conversations again are always really super important and i think the questions that are coming through that interestingly are connecting rhetoric and you know kind of propaganda with the actual access to care it's very interesting it's 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 like those two should not really be in conversation with each other, but that's what we're trying to yeah. dismantle. Well, and I think it's so hard with everything related to abortion care to ever separate those things. They're so ingrained in us that abortion is political. It's like, and, and nothing else in medicine is regulated the way abortion is, that it's so hard to extricate that like political framework from, from the, the medical care, um, which is really frustrating. But for those People who, I think reprodu the reproductive justice framework is so important, especially, especially for white women to know about because it's 
uh, framework, I think we've focused so much historically on this idea of choice um, and thinking about this. So I would encourage everyone to think, to look into that, um, to look into reproductive justice um, and the sort of idea that not just being a proponent and advocate for abortion and, and choices about abortion, but all the choices that I would say are related to that, like being able to raise a child safely, being able to have a child if you want to have a child. Um, all of those things I feel like I know are really related. And so for I think there are probably some participants listening who are really good advocates for abortion and want to pass this information on. But if you don't have you haven't looked into sort of the whole reproductive justice framework, I'd encourage that. Yeah, I would encourage the same too. And I think, you know, a good place to pause as well is just recognizing that the body is political. And so yeah. though abortion has the most extreme regulations around it, I think every potential sexual reproductive experience that a woman is going to have has this politicization. And so again, these conversations are so important to just keep kind of chipping away at that construct and trying to make women, people that have those parts, accessing the yeah. care they need feel more empowered. Yep. This is totally how we take back the narrative about it and, and um, empower people to, to take their own narratives about it. Yeah. Well, as per usual, thank you for joining us and thank you for the questions that came through and looking forward to just continuing this conversation and just, you know, I think again it's so interesting week by week there's so many different pieces of information kind of coming down the pipeline around how the pandemic pandemic is just changing our entire world but it feels good to once a week just pause and really dive into how it's impacting sexual and reproductive health so thank you for taking the time yeah for me too thank you thanks erica bye I'll see you next week thank you for listening if you have questions or feedback shoot us an email at live at thisisloom.com or head over to Instagram. We're at loomhq. If you'd like to hear more from Dr. Erica Cahill, she's on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Erica Cahill. Another opportunity to find out more about her would be to listen to the V Word Pod, her amazing sexual and reproductive health podcast. Our next episode will be about miscarriage. Until then, stay safe, stay open and take care of yourself.